I don't have to tell you that suffering is disempowering. Pain shrinks our world, makes us smaller, limited in body and mind. Maybe you've had a pet get sick or injured, and you've seen them withdraw, curl up, maybe lash out at anyone who gets too close, but they seem to just get smaller and sadder, helpless. That's a natural response. It's often a healthy response to pain. Our body and spirit managing resources, making space for protection and rest and ideally healing and recovery. But when we're in that place, we are stuck. Our options are very narrow. Our agency, our ability to change things is limited. We feel powerless. But as I said, you know that already. I was in a webinar this week with Dr. Betty Priest, church leadership and change consultant. And Betty introduced our group to a model called the change curve. Basically, when we're going through a change, forced or chosen, we can expect to go through this emotional dip. We move through denial, anger, resistance, to this place of grief and negativity at the bottom. Sometimes we get stuck down there for a while, especially if the change is a big one. But eventually, usually, we start to climb up the other side, to accept the change, to explore new possibilities, eventually to commit to living in the new reality. I expect this feels pretty familiar, whether you've seen this model before or not. It's a pretty fair picture of the collective pandemic experience we've all been living through. I mean, up here is January and February 2020, blissful ignorance. And then the spring and summer months of denial and minimizing and resistance. And we spent most of us the winter down here, perhaps bottoming out somewhere in December. Then January and February of this year, I mean, we started talking about vaccination programs, the light at the end of the tunnel. And slowly we've been building towards some kind of new reality. Of course, it hasn't been that smooth of a ride. There have been highs and lows along the way. We're definitely not all at the same place on the curve at the same time. And maybe we're not anywhere, I mean, maybe we're not up here just yet. In 10 years, we may look back and see that all of 2021 is spent just down here a step or two from the bottom. Maybe all the hard work is still ahead of us. Anyway, enough about the pandemic. My point is that the Gospel of Mark is about this downward side of the curve. Jesus and his followers are headed towards the cross. And we can see the disciples going through the denial and anger and resistance of the slide, especially in this chapter of Mark 9. They are grasping for power. They're frustrated that they can't do the miraculous stuff that Jesus can do. They're arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom. They're still holding on to this familiar system of the way things used to be of hierarchy and power. And they're jealous. They're turning friends and teammates into rivals and adversaries along the way. The disciples can feel that this change is stripping them of agency. And they're scrambling to hold on to some kind of control. They're trying to pull themselves back up the slide. This part of the change curve is typically experienced as suffering and powerlessness. 
Likewise, the, story, the people that this story is being told for, Mark's audience of Christ followers in Rome, they are also riding the change curve. Maybe they're a bit further down, maybe not. As I've explained before, the Christians in Rome were scapegoated for the burning of their city. And they were facing torture and extermination. Their leaders had already been killed. The Roman soldiers are hunting down the rest of them. The worst has already happened. I mean, it, it is already happening to them. They can't deny it. They are powerless in their suffering, unable to help themselves. They've come to Jesus, both the disciples in Galilee and the Christians in Rome. They've come to Jesus for help. Get us out of this downward slide. Save us, carry us through to the other side. But that's not what Jesus is offering. Jesus isn't here to rescue them away from their suffering, as we've seen in the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Instead, Jesus and the writer of the Gospel are meeting them down here, trying to get them to see the truth of their situation, trying to help them come to terms with where they are. And at the same time, Jesus and the storyteller are laying new foundations, carving out the building blocks that will help them to climb up the other side towards the new reality. Yes, this change is filled with loss and pain. Yes, you are powerless to stop it. But you are not without hope, not without help, and not without power. That's the backstory for the teaching we read from the end of Mark chapter 9. This strange text about self-mutilations and fire and salt. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to be thrown into hell. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What a bizarre teaching. Definitely strange to us, filtered through layers and layers of language and culture far removed from our own. And I think it was also strange to them. Jesus is being intentionally extreme. He's trying to shock them out of their helplessness, to give them an intellectual jolt to help them move into a different way of seeing their situation. So this is a bizarre teaching, intentionally so. And that means if we care to understand it, we have some literary detective work to do. He said, gleefully rubbing his hands together. I know I'm going to enjoy this far more than most of you will, but I will try to contain myself and keep it brief and to the point. The first piece of the puzzle is this repeating metaphor about cutting off your hands and feet and plucking out your eyes. Trigger warning, right? Some of us have heard this text as a warning about the dangers of hell, the eternal fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. 
Hell is so bad, you'd be better off cutting off your hands and feet and plucking out your eyes than risk going there. And many of us have been taught to hear this as a threat about holiness and purity. Don't sin or you will go to hell. If you're even tempted to look at the wrong thing on the internet, well, you would be better off going blind. If you're even thinking about doing whatever unspeakable things it is that you might do with your hands, better to cut those hands right off. Like I said, Jesus intends for this comment to be shocking. But to make this a teaching about purity, to avoid a literal hell, is to ignore the context of Mark chapter 9. In this speech, Jesus is preaching to the converted, his followers in front of him and in Rome. He isn't trying to scare them into behaving themselves. They are already on board with his program. If anyone is following, if anyone is paying attention to the rules, trying to do the right thing, if anybody is saved from hell, it's them. Plus, this section of the book is talking about power and suffering, living out the way of the cross. The afterlife is just not what Jesus is concerned about at the moment. This isn't what the metaphor is about. And on some level, even the biblical literists, literalists recognize that. I have yet to meet anyone who has taken this warning literally enough to actually go through with it. So if this piece isn't about hell or holiness, what is the point? The short version is that Jesus is calling out the divide between the physical and the spiritual. We tend to separate those, drawing lines between the body and the soul. I mean, we'll say the soul is up here somewhere, between this life and the afterlife. And Jesus is highlighting that divide with the question, which is more important, physical or the spiritual? If you had to choose, if your physical body is somehow an obstacle to your spiritual life, which is it going to be, your body or your soul? And Jesus presupposes the right answer. Of course, the spiritual is the most important thing, Rabbi. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. The kingdom of God is the ultimate. So it doesn't matter what shape this body is in. Just what matters is that you get there, right? The disciples, good law-abiding Jews, they would have been nodding along. And the Christ followers in Rome, I mean, they would have been in agreement as well. After all, they were risking their lives, sacrificing their bodies for their faith. Your body or your soul, your faith or your life, those were real questions. That's essentially the choice they were going to face when the Roman soldiers pounded on their door. Deny your faith or we're taking you to the arena. I imagine that those Christians were worried that they might make the wrong choice when the moment came. When the soldiers stood in front of them, would they be strong? Would they cave? Could they sacrifice their bodies to save their souls? Not so easy, is it? Of course, the spiritual is more important than the physical. But when it's your body, your hands, your life on the line, what would you choose? You looking at your hands right now? Are you picturing or trying not to picture having a hand cut off, having an eye gouged out? That's the point of the metaphor, to make the disciples look at their hands. Because when they looked at their hands, what did they see? 
Were any of them missing a hand at this point? Nope, not that we know of. And why not? If they truly believed that the spiritual was more important than the physical, would they not have already done whatever it takes to protect their spiritual purity? If the afterlife was all that mattered, if the soul was the only thing that was sacred, if their bodies in any way endangered that sacred eternal soul, wouldn't they have already done something about that? You would think so, but they hadn't. Neither have I, and I don't think you have either. So why not? If you haven't cut off your hands, then on some level, you know the truth. That this assumption that the spiritual is above, more important than the physical, is actually ridiculous. It's a false choice, a false dichotomy, because you can't separate the spiritual from the physical. Cutting off your hand won't help your spirit. It can't, because the body and spirit are connected in a way that cannot be severed. You can't limp or grope your way into the realm of God. In that realm, everyone is whole. Come as you are, be who you are. The realm of God is shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. To imagine someone blinding themselves in order to get to the realm of God, that's an enigma an impossibility. Everyone is whole before God, already and always. On some level, you know that, inherently, physiologically. You take care of your body, whatever shape it's in, and your body takes care of you, for you are a whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you question that, if you try to play this game prioritizing one over the other, you've already lost the plot. A very significant sidebar here. If you are someone who might see your body as less than whole in some way, I hope that you hear this as good news too. Your body matters already as it is. It is not at all less than in the eyes of God. You are also already whole. For the physical cannot be separated from the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, everyone is whole. The spiritual realm is wholeness. Easy for me to say, perhaps, but I think it's the gospel truth. So that's the first piece of this puzzle. You cannot separate physical and spiritual. The second piece is the next line. Everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, then, let's break that down forensic style. Everyone. As I said, in this section of Mark, Jesus' followers were feeling the insecurities on the downward slide of the change curve. They were worried about their inability to heal a sick child. They bickered about their status within the group. And they were jealous of some random guy performing miracles in Jesus' name. I mean, he wasn't even an official member of the group. Yet somehow he was succeeding where they had failed. Insecurity, status, self-worth. That's what the change curve brought out. That was what they were worried about, those disciples in Galilee. It's easy to imagine similar insecurities among the Christ followers in Rome. Why did so-and-so get taken while I'm still here? 
Why do I survive? What does that say about me? Why do we suffer when other Christians in other places are thriving? Why is this happening to us? To those worries, Jesus says, this is an everyone situation. Stop comparing yourself to others. You are not better than, and you are not unique in your sufferings and your failures. There is a common denominator. And the common denominator is salt. I learned a lot of interesting things about salt this week. Fun fact of the day, in ancient times, salt was quite rare and extremely valuable. So valuable that it was sometimes called white gold. In fact, soldiers in the Roman army would sometimes be paid not with gold or coins, but with salt. They would receive a monthly stipend in salt called a salarium, which is where our term salary comes from. All you salaried employees out there just working for your salt. It's all about the sodium, baby. Uh-huh, yeah. See, you shouldn't have encouraged me last time I tried rapping from the pulpit. The other thing that Romans did with salt, because of its high value, was that they used salt in the offerings that they made to their gods. When they wanted to make a special offering, a special sacrifice to the gods, they would tie packets of salt on the head of those prisoners that they were about to execute. That's what the Roman Christians were facing. That was their deep fear that they would have that precious salt tied to their heads. They would be salted and sacrificed to the emperor and gods of Rome. And here Jesus and Mark name that fear. They see it and they remind them it's terrible, but it's a paradox. This salt is both valuable and terrifying. Even if the worst happened, their death, their death would be salted, would be anointed, it would be made sacred. Their sacrifice, even offered to the gods of Rome, would still be this thing of great value. Salt has value, even in death. And everything will be salted with fire. Fire was a loaded image in first century Judaism. Fire symbolized judgment, and purification, and also mortality. Fire is the great equalizer. Everything burns. As Mark's audience knew all too well, Rome burned. That was the catalyst for their torture. Soon, Jerusalem would also burn, even the temple of God, the holy of holies. And the Jews believed that a day of even greater fire was coming, the refiner's fire of the day of the Lord that would end this age and begin the next, combining judgment and purity to make all things new. All things and everyone burn. There's no escaping the fire, Jesus told his disciples in Galilee. We're down here. It's coming for you, whether you follow me to the cross or not. Everything ends up in the fire, Mark wrote to the Christ followers in Rome. Your challenge, terrible as it is, is not unique. Everyone faces what you are facing in their own way. Everyone will be salted with fire. And that, again, is both burden and blessing. Another piece of the puzzle. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, how can you make it salty again? 
Salt is good, as I said, excellent, beautiful, valuable. And salt is also delicate, fragile. It's useful just the one time. Salt is impermanent. If salt loses its flavor, how can you make it salty again? Obviously you can't. So salt is both valuable and vulnerable, burden and blessing, sacred and vulgar. That's the paradox of the change curve. It's hard and it's unavoidable, but it's good. It's progress, but it's also pain and loss. It can be hell, but it is also sacred. It's growth. It is death and also life. You cannot separate the sacred from the profane, the good from the bad, just as you cannot separate the physical from the spiritual. Are the puzzle pieces starting to fit together? Can you see the pattern here? One more piece. Hopefully by this point, it's not too much of a mystery. Have salt in yourselves and live in peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves. The changes, the suffering does not diminish your worth. Don't sell yourself so short. You can do this. You have it in you. Recognize the salt, the great value, the spirit of God I would name within you. And then live in peace with one another. The jealousy, the comparisons, jockeying for position, wondering about who is in and who is out, whether someone is good or, or not. The fires of change are an opportunity to let go of all of that. Because everyone burns, everyone suffers. This journey is one we all share. So live in peace with one another. We are in this together. Peace from the Greek ero, to join, to tie together into a whole. You belong and I belong, physical and spiritual, pain and growth, life and death. All parts take place within holes. All divisions take place within a greater unity. It is all held in an even wider embrace. You have incredible value and everything belongs. Yeah, this is exactly the same message I preached from Mark chapter one, three weeks ago about Jesus' baptism. And it's the same one I preached two weeks ago about Mark chapters four to eight, as Jesus crossed and recrossed the stormy sea of Galilee. And yeah, it's the same chord that Josephine struck with her message on Mark's gospel last week about mutual aid, sharing our burdens and provisions. Mark's gospel keeps on finding the same, different ways to say the same thing. In your suffering, you have great worth. You are God's beloved. God's own. You are enough. You have enough. Enough even to share. And in the wilderness, even the wilderness, the storms, the tension, even the suffering, everything belongs. It's all tied together. It's part of the whole of Shalom. So that's the whole puzzle. Well done, detectives. I think we just redeemed that disturbing and confusing text. Those puzzle pieces are the first building blocks of finding our way up the other side of the change curve. 
As I said way back at the beginning, change and especially suffering makes us feel powerless and helpless. And that's what it feels like down here at the bottom of the curve. And if our goal is to get back up here, back to the comfort and security of the way things used to be, well, yeah, we are pretty much powerless to make that happen. We're powerless to go back, but we are not powerless to move forward. And moving forward begins with remembering our value, our inherent worth that cannot be diminished. Have salt in yourselves. That's the first step up. And live in peace with one another. That's the second. Be tied together with everything. Embrace the wholeness, even at the bottom of the curve. Alexander Shia suggests a simple prayer practice to help Mark's message sink in a little deeper. The equilateral cross, a simple cross with four arms of equal length, like a plus sign. It's hardly exclusive to Christianity. As Shia points out, this form of the cross was known throughout the Middle East for thousands of years before the time of Jesus. But the followers of Jesus adopted this symbol as their own, even using it as the traditional shape of baptism pools in cathedrals until the seventh century. Shia suggests that when we read Jesus' words, pick up your cross and follow, it was this shape that was most likely being referenced by Mark. Its equal arms formed a symbol known from antiquity to represent the joining of all opposites, female with male, heaven with earth, and especially death with life. Everything belongs, held in tension, even opposites. So as you pray, you might visualize this equal cross sign in your mind. You might trace it with a finger or a pen on paper, or you might borrow a simple embodiment tradition from our Catholic friends, Creator, Savior, Spirit, Amen. Have salt in yourselves, my friends, and be at peace in the world where everything belongs. Amen.